We long for that to be the authentic and outpouring testimony of our lives. We thank you so much that we can sing these great truths that our sin, not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross. We do long for the day when our faith will be sight, and we recognize, though, that we need to be faithful in the meantime. And so, Father, help us to rest in our precious Lord Jesus and in the promises of your word. Strengthen us now as we study the book together that it would influence and impact our lives in a very specific and helpful way today through the ongoing ministry of your Holy Spirit. And Father, I pray specifically for our mothers today. I thank you for them. I thank you for their great influence in our lives. And I pray that mothers today would be encouraged as well in a special way through the message. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, whether you're a mother or not, I wonder if you've ever wanted to quit. You just become so weary that you want to give up. It could be that circumstances are pressing in on you in such a way that you see no good way for things to end. It could be that the misery meter of your life is in the red zone long enough And you just think it's time to quit. I think we've all been there at some level, sometime, wanting to quit. It was interesting to me to read that the record for the shortest Major League Baseball career ever was less than one inning, and the guy quit. It goes way back to the Brooklyn Dodgers of 1918. A pitcher named Harry Hartman was a gifted young ball player. He was called up to play from the minors that day to pitch finally in a, in a major league game here early in the history of major league baseball to pitch against the Pittsburgh Pirates. It's a boy's dream, isn't it? A ball player's dream anyway. This was the moment that Harry Hartman had dreamed about and in his mind it had to be indeed the beginning of a great career, but it didn't take long for his dreams to fade The very first pitch that he threw was hit for a single. The next batter tripled, kind of rattled him, so he walked the next guy, and then the next guy got on with a base hit. The next batter tripled again, another triple, rattled even further. He walked the next batter on four straight pitches, and then when he did throw a strike to the next hitter, he hit it for another base hit. At that point, Hartman had simply had enough. He headed for the showers, dressed right in the middle of the game, walked out of the stadium locker room to the naval recruiting officer where he enlisted. And the next day, he was in a military uniform, never to be heard of again in professional baseball. It's just time to quit. I invite you to turn to Hebrews chapter 4, and as you do, you need to be reminded that Here's a group of believers who are ready to quit. I do recognize that it's Mother's Day today, and though our text is not specifically about mothers, it is my prayer that it would be this message today of special encouragement to mothers who are here. I think mothers must want to quit once in a while, Uh, maybe every day. When I think about my mother, um, I guess it never occurred to me that my mother would ever get weary and want to quit. I had a mother that I was reminded of in a little story that I heard about a boy in math class where his teacher was giving him a story problem. 
And the story problem was supposed to be like real life, and the teacher knew about the boy's family, and so the teacher looked at the boy, and she said, now suppose your mother baked a pie, and there were seven of you, your parents, and you five kids, seven of you. Your mom baked the pie. She wanted to cut it up and give out a piece to everybody. What part of the pie would you get? Right away, the boy just said, one-sixth. Well, the teacher corrected him. No, you don't know your fractions, she said. Remember, there are seven of you. Yes, teacher, but you don't know my mother, he replied back immediately. My mother would say she didn't want any pie. That's the kind of mother I had. She would, not so much that she didn't want pie, but she would want everyone else to have enough pie. I had been reflecting on my mother even this morning early. I rise fairly early on Sunday mornings, um, not as early as when I used to rise to go to the dairy barn. By 4 a.m., I would walk into our kitchen there in Michigan. My mother, my father was a pastor. My mother was a pastor's wife, but I worked on a dairy farm all through high school for a man in our church, milking cows, working on the farm. By 4 a.m., when I would come down the hallway, the dim light over the stove would be on, and my mom would be fixing me a hot breakfast, morning in and morning out. Whew. I'd have told me to get a bowl of cereal on some granola bars or something. But that was my mother, just a servant's heart, servant to our church, a servant to my father, who was the pastor of our little Bible church. I can remember going to bed on Saturday nights to the clatter of the old hand-driven crank handle of the mimeograph machine. You have to look that up, young people. A mimeograph machine as my mom cranked out the bulletin when my dad finally got it done on Saturday evening. She served the Lord. She was a long time my only Sunday school teacher. She was, when I was in high school, those years milking cows, we had a very small Bible church in Michigan that my dad pastored, and my mom was my youth leader as well. And I was the only senior high boy there. It's easy to get weary, isn't it? Even in well-doing, to want to quit. Well, as we turn our attention to Hebrews chapter 4, you're going to recognize that it's somewhat of a familiar text Much like last week, these verses are some of the most familiar verses in all of Hebrews, and some of you may have even memorized them in the past. Let's read our text as we recognize in these verses that the writer of Hebrews is giving the recipients of this book, this small Jewish community of believers who have grown weary in following Christ in a short time, he's giving them a reason not to quit. Here's our text. Hebrews 4, verse 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. So there it is, the reason we have this high priest, therefore hold fast to this confession of faith in Jesus Christ. Don't quit. Don't stop following Christ. For we do not, verse 15, have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but he was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Verse 16, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. We'll stop there, even though it's right in the middle of a teaching that goes on about the high priestly role and how Christ is our great high priest We'll pick it up next week. Let's just cover these three verses. I think it will be helpful for us 
to establish in our minds um, why he's writing these verses. And it occurred to me that the placement of these verses is in response at some level to the previous two, ver- two verses. The writer of Hebrews cares deeply about the recipients, this small Jewish church, that's why they're called Hebrews, and they are discouraged, and he knows that they're going to want to leave and walk away from Christ. And he's just written some very strong words to them, reminding them of the example of disobedience in the wilderness in Israel's history, We've talked a lot about that. And so in verse 12, he reminds them that the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces even to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow. It is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Those are overwhelming realities presented there. You can't sneak on God, you can't fool God, you can't hide God, you stand accountable to God. So how can any of us pass the test of the scrutiny of the word of God or pass the test of the scrutiny of the eye of God upon us? And immediately, I think, because he's a gracious teacher, he wants to remind them, though, but we have a great high priest. And he's there representing us So though we would have no defense on our own in this wide open and naked evaluation, we have a high priest who understands exactly what we're thinking, exactly what we're feeling. He knows exactly why we've done what we've done. And he's carried our sin to the cross and he's finished the work that God has for him. And he's seated at the right hand of God. I think at some level that's in the mind of the writer here. Secondly, I think it's important to recognize that he has touched upon this theme of Jesus Christ being our high priest. All right? And even to us today, that's a little bit of an unfamiliar term. If you've been around church world for a while, we know that in the Old Testament there were priests and there was a high priest. And at some level we understand it, but we're really sitting here thinking about, "Eh, I wonder how long PV is going to go and what are we having for lunch with mom? But I want you to know that when the, when the recipients of this letter first, the, the original audience received this letter, there were already some touchings upon this reality that Jesus is our high priest. And I think it had to catch them by surprise. For example, in chapter 2, verse 17, where we've already been, and remember that he has been arguing with them from the very beginning. He just started right into the book Jesus Christ brings a greater revelation than all of the prophets of old and their revelation. It's a superior revelation. And Jesus is greater than angels. And Jesus is greater than Moses. And Jesus is greater than the law. All these people who would have been steeped in all of this. In fact, our theme for the book and our our summary really of the book on our color splash of our screen title is Hebrews. It's all about the supremacy of Christ over all of these things. And so he's teaching about these things. And in chapter 2, verse 17, when he's letting them know that Christ is greater than angels even, he says, you see, their problem was, remember, that if, if human beings who have flesh are lower than angels and Jesus took on flesh, how is it that he could be greater than angels? He's a human. Humans aren't greater than angels. And so in 2.17, he's touching on this, and he says, 
He didn't do this, verse 16, to give aid to angels. He put on flesh to give aid to the seed of Abraham, God's people. Verse 17, therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God and to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So he's arguing about why Jesus became man, human, put on flesh, because that makes him lower than the angels in the mind of the Hebrews, and they think angels are really important, so why should we follow Jesus? And he says he had to do that so that he could become a merciful high priest. You have to believe that the Hebrews like, what does that mean? How could he be my high priest? He touches on it again in chapter 3, verse 1, and he says, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling... I want you to consider the apostle, the the one who brings good news, the ultimate apostle, Jesus Christ, and the high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. He's the high priest of our faith, Jesus Christ. And in their minds, I think at some level, it it had to cause a question. How could Jesus serve in the role of a high priest? And that's what he's arguing now. He's coming back to that argument. I want to tell you now how he is our high priest. And he's going to go extensively into this in chapter 5. We're just picking up the end of chapter 4 where he begins this teaching, filling in the blanks in the minds of the Hebrews. How can it be that Jesus is this faithful high priest? You see, you need to know that thirdly what he's doing is he's creating now in the end of four and into chapter five a compelling argument to the Hebrew believers of the superiority of Christ over the priesthood of Aaron. So if we took the time, and then sometimes I think Hebrews would be better off taught in a classroom where we had a, maybe a little bit longer time. You had a chance to answer, ask and answer questions. We had a whiteboard and an overhead and a PowerPoint, and we had notes, and we could talk. And You see, we would go now to Exodus chapter 26, 27, and 28, and there's where he gave the instruction for the wilderness tabernacle, the place where God would meet with his people, and there he gave specific instruction to Aaron to become a priest and for Aaron to be a high priest, how to dress even, what to wear when he went into the tabernacle to meet with God on behalf of the people. So the Hebrew believers who received this letter would have understood all that. For us, we need to remind ourselves, okay, what's a priest? What did he do? What's the tabernacle? What's the high priest? What does he do? Because ultimately, they are impressed with the high priest in their Judaism. They're thinking about going back to that. And the writer says, don't quit. You think the priests of the line of Aaron are something. That's nothing compared to Jesus Christ, our high priest. And so we get into our text and what he wants them to know right away is that we have a great high priest. Number one, Christ is superior. It's the argument of the whole book, really. Christ is superior, but specifically He is a superior high priest, even over Aaron. Even though he's not mentioning Aaron's name here, that in the mind of the Hebrews would be equated. You're telling me that this Jesus that we're thinking about walking away from and quitting on and going back to our old Judaism, that he's a greater priest than Aaron even? 
the brother of Moses who was in book of Exodus given specific instruction on how to lead this priesthood and how to implement this priesthood in the Old Testament? You see, letter A, it says, I wanted to emphasize what he says in the text, seeing that we have a great high priest. He's emphasizing the greatness of this high priest. He is superior to all earthly priests. Secondly, the reason for that is, is that he has passed through the heavens. Jesus, as a high priest, didn't go into the tabernacle. He went right through the heavens to the very throne room of God. Okay, so now, class, we have to stop for just a minute and remind ourselves of a couple of things. I have a, a picture of a tabernacle. It's not great. The people in the front row will appreciate it more than the people in the back row. But it gives you a little bit of an idea. And what this is was specific instruction about where God said to Moses to build this tabernacle. It was portable. It was made out of fabrics and tents and 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 tent poles and strings and guy wires. So it was semi-permanent. It was very, very strong, very thick fabric. It was also this layout was essentially the pattern later on for the temple where there would be an outer court. And so what you need to know is that this part of the tabernacle, this outer curtain was 75 feet wide. You can kind of see that in the picture, 75 feet wide. So that's this building right here, the block wall right there and the block wall right there on each end of your, your right and your left is 80 feet. It's 80 feet. And so the tabernacle was 75 feet wide and then double that, it was 150 feet long. And that's that outer fabric fence. When you would, the priest then would come in, it was the outer court and other people were allowed in the outer court as well. There would be where they did burnt offerings. There was the brazen laver where they would wash and cleanse themselves in ceremonial washings so that they would be clean and worthy to carry out these sacrifices for sin. You say, why did they do that? Why did they kill animals and make blood sacrifices? God commanded them to do that because it was a living visual to them, a daily reminder to them at their holidays and their feasts and their festivals. It was always a reminder when the blood flowed from these sacrifices that the wages of sin is death. And so God was creating a picture, and that's why Jesus is called the Lamb of God. He was the sacrifice that ended it all. He was the final sacrifice. We'll talk more about that in just a minute. So you have this 75 feet wide by 150 foot deep fenced-in curtain area and courtyard, and they would come into the outer court. And so the priest, on the Day of Atonement, just once a year, Out of the priest would be selected a man who was the high priest. The high priest would come into this outer court, and then he would pass, and you can kind of see by the the breakdown into this room that was built there, and that room made out of fabrics, very specifically, you can read about this in Exodus 26, 27, and 28, was 15 feet wide and 45 feet deep. The front part of it was called the sanctuary or the most holy place, was 15 feet wide and 30 foot deep. Can you see on the screen where there's sort of a breakdown of a wall that's in there? There's another veil, and that part was the holy of holies, and it was the back 15 feet by 15 feet. Okay, so you got the courtyard, you could come in the outer court, then you could come into this 15 feet wide by 40 foot, 45 feet long area that was like a room made out of fabric. The front part of that was 
15 feet wide and 30 foot deep. And there in that area was the candlestick, the table of showbread, and the altar of incense. We don't have time to explain all that, but there they would burn incense. And it was designed by God to represent a pleasing aroma in his nostrils. But then you had that veil for that 15 foot by 15 foot part. Now you know about that veil. We talk about that veil, that room, 15 feet wide, 15 foot deep. You see, that was a place that nobody was allowed to go. Only the high priest could go there one day a year on the day of atonement. Okay? Only on the day of atonement. And he would carefully prepare himself. You see, in there, that area is called the Holy of Holies. And in there was the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat of God. We talked about the ark last week. Aaron's staff that budded was in that ark. It was a gold-plated box. Remember, we talked about Uzzah last week who reached out to touch it when when David was moving it back uh, from the Philistines. And it began to teeter-totter when the oxen tripped and Uzzah reached up to touch it and he was struck dead because God told him. We were illustrating the authority and power of God's word. But in in that ark of the covenant was Aaron's staff that had budded. It was a gold pot full of manna from the wilderness there. And it was the stone tablets that God gave them the commandments on. And there was the gold shaped cherubim. I might have another picture of a high priest standing before it. If it's there, David, you can put it up. If not, it's okay. We'll do it another day. But there you can kind of see the high priest standing in front of the altar. And those cherubim are the gold gold-shaped wings, and there, now listen to me, there is where God met man. There is where the high priest interceded for the sins of the people in the presence of a holy God. So they're not like us. Here's what we do. Phone rings, 7 o'clock, Sunday morning. Hey, Jenk, let's go bass fishing today. Let's go. Sure. Well, I'm going to church. We can worship God out on the river. Question. Can we worship God out on the river? Yes. The answer is yes. Okay. Hey, bud, let's go golfing. Well, I go to Sunday school and church. Well, let's go golfing. You can worship the Lord in nature. Can you worship the Lord on a golf course? Sure you can. Wherever we go, there's the Lord. We have instant communion with him. And technically we could do that. Now by instruction, We're not told how often to gather together, but we are told to be characterized by meeting together. And so it's our practice to meet on the first day of the week in the morning early to encourage one another and to worship and sing and pray and hear God's word. It's a good practice. But it wouldn't be a sin to go worship God on the river while you're fishing. All right? It's pretty hard to test your heart and know if your motives are pure there. But in the Old Testament, you didn't do that. You wouldn't say, you wouldn't say, hey, let's go fishing and we'll worship God out on the riverbank. You wouldn't do that. You would worship God at the tabernacle. You would worship God through the sacrifices. You would worship God there. And when you met with God there, there you would be in that holy of holies. And there was, that's where the Shekinah glory was represented by the smoke there. And that's incense that he's burning. But the Shekinah glory was a, was a cloud and a fire. It represented in a physical pattern the, the presence of God. So it wasn't like God's down at the river and God's on the golf course and God's 
with us here and God's everywhere. No, God meets with man in the holy of holies. All right, it's taken me a few minutes to explain that. But remember the Hebrew believers are thinking that the high priest of, of the line of Aaron is really important. And Jesus is not so important. And the writer of Hebrews, the first thing he wants to tell them is, I want to tell you that Jesus Christ is a superior high priest to anybody in human form, anybody from the line of Aaron. And so what does he say? He said, he says, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. So immediately the Hebrew believers go back to the picture of the tabernacle, David, please. Immediately, the Hebrew believers knew that when the high priest was preparing himself, he would have gone through the front gate, through the courtyard of the sanctuary, into the holy place, and then preparing himself there, he would have passed then thirdly into the holy of holies. And the writer of Hebrews says, Jesus didn't pass through the tabernacle courtyard. Jesus passed right through the heavens, right into the throne room of God. He didn't just go one day He's there now. He didn't just go for a few minutes, and that was an awesome thing to go into the Holy of Holies. There's a, it's, we're told, at least on tradition, that, that when the priest prepared himself to go in there, and God would, would, would have struck dead a priest who came in unworthily, we're told that they would sew bells around the hems of their garments, and then this is the part that I think is tradition, but they would tie a rope around their ankle, So that when he went in there, if they heard the clatter of bells, they knew that his sacrifice was unacceptable. He came before the Lord with an unworthy heart or dirty hands or somehow unclean. He had stepped in something he wasn't supposed to step on and he was unclean. And he went into the holy of holies unclean. God would strike him dead just like he did ooze a touch in the ark. And when they heard the clatter of bells, then they would grab the rope and pull him out because if they went in there to get him, they would have been struck dead. And that's where you meet God. And so he's saying, look, you can think about that high priest. But I'm telling you, Jesus Christ didn't enter the courtyard through the sanctuary and into the Holy of Holies for just a few minutes once a year. No, he entered through the heavenlies and he is now in the very presence of the throne room of God. Not only that, the second thing you need to know is that there he is. And he reminded them in chapter one, verse three, that he is seated there. He's not standing there. He's not doing sacrifice there. He's not just in and out in some kind of a ritualistic way. He has gone into the presence of God in the throne room of God, and he's seated there. Number th- Verse 3 of chapter 1, who, Jesus, being the brightness of his glory, he's, he's talking about Christ, the express image of his person, that Jesus is the express image of the person of God, And upholding all things by the word of his power, Jesus upholds all things by the word of his power, when he had made by himself, when he had by himself purged our sins, when Jesus had through his own atoning work purged our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. You see what he's saying? So you're impressed with an earthly high priest. I want you to be impressed with this high priest. It's not one day on the day of atonement. It is a permanent work. And he has gone not into the Holy of Holies, but he has gone right into the throne room of God. By the way, that curtain that divided the holy place, the outer 15 by 30 feet of that room from the 15 by 15 part, that curtain, you know about that curtain. On Good Friday, we talk about that curtain. You've heard the phrase, the veil was rent. 
or the curtain was torn. You see, when Jesus hung on the cross and he said, it is finished, the plan of God was satisfied. Atonement for the sins of the world had once and for all been cared for. And remember when he said, it is finished, we're told that the curtain was torn from the top to the bottom. That curtain, they said, is the thickness of a man's wrist. They said you could hook a team of oxen to it and not tear it. It was an unterrible fabric. It was so strong. And God tore it from the top to the bottom to show that no man tore it from the bottom up. No one cut it with a knife. God tore it. What did he do? He opened up the holy of holies now for all people everywhere to come in to the presence of God through Christ. That's the picture. It's profound. And the Hebrews are going to walk away from this Jesus. I wonder if there's anybody here today who would walk away from Jesus. He's not worth it. No, he's your great high priest. First of all, he is superior to any earthly priest. Secondly, he is seated because it's a finished work. Look at chapter 7, and uh, we'll finish this message up sooner than you think. Chapter 7, verses 26 and 27. Look what he said there. For such a high priest was fitting for us who is holy, harmless, undefiled. This is Hebrews chapter 7, verse 26. Such a high priest was fitting for us, this Jesus, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily as those priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins. You see, the high priest used to have to do a ritual to take care of his own sins before he could take care of the sins of the people. And look what it says first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this, he, Jesus, did once for all when he offered up himself. Jesus' sacrifice as a high priest was once for all good and done. So number one, he's a superior high priest. Number two, he's a seated high priest. Number three, he satisfied the Father's demands. And that's seen in chapter 2, verse 17, not chapter 3, verse 17. It's a typo on my part. Chapter 2, verse 17, we've already read this, where he touched on this reality of the high priest to the Hebrews. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the world. They wanted to know why Jesus was superior to angels if he took on a human flesh. It's because he had to do this, God in the flesh, so that he could be a sacrificial lamb. And the word propitiation is used there. Let's remind ourselves what that is. That is when all of the sin of the world was stacked up on Jesus. And he pays the price for it once and for all. All the sin before him of everyone who ever lived and all the sin after him of everyone who ever lived. And he stacked it up on himself. And he satisfied the demands of a holy God. I've been texting a guy this week. He's in free fall sin. And I texted him and I said, I said, man, you need to run to the cross and shower in the blood of Christ. You need to run to the cross and shower in the blood of Christ. He texted me back and he said, no, it's too late. I said, I want you to answer to me why you think it's too late. That is a lie from the pit of hell because right here it says that Jesus has made propitiation for the sins of the world. That's all sin. You cannot get into sin so deep that there's no recovery. 
You cannot get into sin that is so heinous or so ugly. Didn't I use a terrible illustration a couple weeks ago about, it was off the cuff, guys in the night going out in the country, tying up an old 80-year-old lady, duct taping her to her chair, hitting her in the head with a ball-peen hammer and stealing her prescription drugs, killing her. You know, you hear stuff like that. That sin was satisfied through the sacrificial atoning sacrifice of the Lord Jesus. He made propitiation for all sin and all sinners. You can't out-sin. Now, Paul reminded us that because you can't out-sin the blood and sacrifice of Christ and that grace abounds, you don't sin so that grace just keeps abounding. God forbid. We're broken over our sinfulness and only broken people run to the cross and shower in the blood of Christ. But he's, he's satisfied the Father's demands, and that's why he's seated. So he's a superior high priest. He sat down because, number three, he has satisfied the Father's demands by becoming the propitiation for sin, the ultimate atoning sacrifice that once for all satisfied the demands of a just and holy God. He doesn't stop there, though. It becomes very personal, even beyond this idea of of Christ as our savior from sin. It's a high priest who's available to us for help on a daily basis. Look what he says. Christ, number four, is, a, is sympathetic. So let's just remind ourselves in verse 14. See where he says? So he says, let us hold fast our confession. Do not give up on your testimony, your confession of faith, because we have this high priest unlike any other earthly high priest. And he's seated at the right hand of the Father, and he's satisfied the demands of a holy God. And 15, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are without sin. You see, we have a sympathetic high priest. How is it that we have a sympathetic high priest? Look at verse 18 of chapter 2. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. I have to tell you, at one level, I cannot explain this. How is it that Jesus, being all God here, all God, absolutely incapable of sinning, and being all man here combined, capable of responding to the temptation of sin, how can... How can it be that we have a high priest who's been tempted like we are? For one thing, he was never tempted to lay on the couch and eat potato chips and ice cream all day and drink Mountain Dew and cereal watch Blue Bloods. Of course, there was no Blue Bloods, there was no TV, there was no couch, there was no Mountain Dew, there was no potato chips, there was no ice cream. So you say, see, he can't be tempted the way I am when I get down in the dumps. No, but... In every element of how temptation works, in the way that every human is hardwired for temptation, our Lord has experienced that. So yes, in his deity, he could not sin. It was absolutely impossible for God to sin. On the other hand, it says, in his trials and and, and sufferings, he experienced everything we can experience. I, I quoted what... Uh, Simon Kistemacher from the New Testament commentary that I appreciate much. He said, he has been tempted in extent and range in every way. Nothing in human experience is foreign to him for he himself endured it and he had been tempted just as intensely as we are. 
So how does that look? Let's go to the most well-known temptation point in the life of our Lord, okay? That would be in the wilderness, right? When he was fasting for 40 days, 40 nights, early on in his ministry, and then Satan comes to tempt him. All right? He's all God. He can't sin. He's all human. Well, that's com- he's all God. He can't starve to death. God can't die of starvation, right? So if Jesus is all God, he couldn't starve to death. And yet he's all human, and he's been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, and Satan points at a rock that looks like a loaf of bread, and he says, hey, use your super-duper power and make that into a loaf of bread and knock off this fasting and satisfy the craving that your humanity, your human flesh has to eat right now. But that would have been outside the will of God. It would have been him giving in to Satan. It would have him using his power in a way that he wasn't supposed to right then. Hey, if you stop and think about it, he could have made it any kind of bread he wanted. He could have made it a cinnamon bun with frosting on top. He could have made it, he might as well make it a warm loaf of bread with butter melting and homemade strawberry freezer jam. And in his flesh, who? Was Jesus truly famished and hungry and craving food in his body? And did Satan point at the loaf of bread? And did he have it within his capacity in a nanosecond of thought to make that a beautiful warm loaf of bread with butter and strawberry jam and enjoy it right then and there? So you tell me Jesus doesn't understand what it is for the flesh to cry out for some satisfaction? He understands. He knows. And that's only one instance. How about when he was on the cross and his arms are spread out and he's nailed and he's not dead yet and he's suffering for the sins of the world and the worst point of the suffering is going to come in a moment when the father turns his back on the son because he can't look at the sin that's heaped up on him. And right in the middle of that, okay, so God is on the cross, right? God can't die. He had to become like a son of Abraham so that he could become a sacrificial lamb. He had to have a fleshly body so that it would die because the wages of sin is death. But what I'm thinking about is in his, hum- in his godness, hmm, no problem, can't even feel pain. In his humanity, every excruciating pain that a person could feel. And furthermore, then these rascalians in the crowd come and they look up at him and they hock and they spit at him and they curse him and they throw things at him. All right. Can you throw a rock at God and hurt him? Class, the answer has to be no. If Jesus is hanging on the cross as a man and he gets spit on with a hocker and he could throw a rock at him and they're cursing him and they say, come on down if you can get yourself down. I guess they didn't need to say hocker, but you know what I'm saying. Don't you think in his flesh, he would say, I could come off this cross and spin around and give you a heel up beside your ear and knock you out with a cage or without a cage. I could take you out. Don't you think in his humanity, the temptation was there to want to retaliate? If somebody's screaming hate at you and it's an unjust moment anyway, and you don't want to be there in your humanity, don't you think he knew what it was like to feel in his body the desire to want to follow through the way every human would want to follow through at that moment? And yet he couldn't go figure. I can't really explain it. One Bible 
student that I read fairly regularly on his notes on Hebrews. This is Dr. Constable out of Dallas Seminary, and he gave the illustration that even like a big rock, let's picture it up on the coastline of Maine, where the water, the waves are tumbling in on the big rock, and the rock can't move, and so it's taking the full force of the waves. He's saying Jesus, in his deity and humanity combined, took the full force of the feeling of temptation and couldn't give in. And so he felt the full force, not like rocks and rubble and driftwood that goes back and forth and was given over to the waves. I don't know if that word picture helps or not. I, I can't really explain this. But the idea is completely true that he is a sympathetic high priest and then ultimately, which we've already been illustrating, he is completely sinless. Number five, completely sinless. He is a sympathetic high priest who knows our weaknesses in his human form. He felt it all, but was in all points, but was in all points tempted as we are. Every category of temptation that you can know, he knew. He never sinned though. He was sinless Finally, look at verse 16. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace in the time of need. It's a beautiful verse. You want to walk away from this, Jesus? Christ, the only way I thought to say it is he is a safe high priest. Christ is safe. You, the words don't even fit together, do they? Throne room, throne, come boldly power of the throne, a place for grace, a place to experience your weakness and bring it there. It kind of doesn't even fit together, but our high priest with the finished work went through the heavenlies, not through the courtyard and into the Holy of Holies. He went straight up in the heavens, right into the courtroom of God. And then he sat down on the right hand of the father because he had finished and completed the work of propitiation. And now he sits there and he is available for you Hebrews and you Shenandoah Junction people. He is available, and he wants us to come, letter A, he wants us to come confidently. Let us therefore come boldly, come confidently, come boldly to his throne of grace. Letter B, come expectantly, come expectantly that we would find grace to help. We don't just go there and expect nothing to happen. He says, you can come to me. You know, and it even relates to the rest the concept of rest that we've been talking about it, how Jesus said in, come unto me all you who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Come to the throne room today. Don't be afraid of this king. Don't be afraid of this high priest. You're not going to have to tie a rope around your ankle and have bells on your hems to get jerked out of there if you come dirty. He knows, come. He's done it for you. So come confidently, come expectantly, and we come very dependently upon him, very dependently upon him because it is in our time of need. And if we say we have no need, we're liars. We're a needy people, aren't we? We're so needy. And we come dependently because that's my only hope. And Hebrew believers want to go back to Judaism and to externals of keeping the law. And you think this Jesus isn't impressive? He's more impressive than the priesthood of Aaron. And he's seated at the right hand of the Father. So don't ever say, listen to me, if you're a wearisome person, maybe you're a mother and you want to run. Maybe you're sick of your kids. Maybe you're sick of your husband. Maybe, maybe you're at your job and, and you're ready to quit. 
You're in school and you're ready to quit. Maybe you're fighting some temptation and you're ready to quit. Don't ever say, don't ever say, no one knows what I'm going through. Because you have a high priest who knows exactly what you're going through. And don't ever think, don't ever think, I don't have anyone to turn to. Because you have a merciful high priest to turn to at any time in prayer, in faith, believing. Yes, you have to link your faith to the promises of God and enter into his presence by faith. It's hard for us to do. Don't ever say, no one knows what I'm going through. Don't ever think I don't have anyone to turn to. I'm going to hold the last word till I'm right done because otherwise you'll shut your Bibles and stop listening. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, No temptation has ever over, has overtaken you except such as common to man, but God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. 1 Corinthians 10.13. Listen, there is help in our time of need, and it is this high priest, and he welcomes us into his presence for help in our time of need. So don't ever quit. Don't ever quit. Let's stand and pray. And so, Father, we thank you for these teachings. It's a little hard sometimes for us to get our mind around it. But thank you for this wonderful Lord Jesus. Thank you for the high high priestly function and office and role of Jesus, the high priest. Our high priest, our great king, too, who sits on a throne in a throne room where sinners like us are welcomed in by his grace, through his mercy, through his finished work, his propitiation, taking our sin upon himself. Father, if there's anyone here today who needs to humble their heart and cast their sin upon you, would you convict them and challenge them? If there's anyone here today who's ready to quit, would you encourage them, Lord, through your Holy Spirit? Give them new eyes to see this high priest, Jesus, who's waiting for them in their time of need. Help us to walk by faith as we sang this morning and not by sight. In Jesus' name I ask these things, thanking you for our mothers also. Amen.